And then I got king hit on the back of the head and I fell and I got stomped a fair bit on the grounds and I, there was no chance to defend myself whatsoever in that situation and that was probably the worst because I didn't see it coming. That's Nathan Lim and if you heard his story from someone else you'd be forgiven for thinking he's making it up. His life so far has been such a random series of events that it's hard to imagine all this stuff could happen to one person, but it's all true. Culture shock going from homelessness and oil rigs being a rough type of individual to putting on a suit. Nathan was a self-described street kid living a chaotic life in and out of crisis housing through teenagehood due to his parents' mental illness leaving them unable to care for him. He was faced with the threat of extreme physical violence on a constant basis, growing up in a world where a looming sense of despair was the norm. Going through obesity, to homeless, to people beating you every day, to the school telling you that you're not going to amount to much, to everything in society just being genuinely against you. How, how can you cultivate any self-worth? He survived by any means necessary and found work everywhere from helicopter hangars to oil rigs to selling real estate and solar power, all while trying to find his elusive place in the world. Went from a street kid to now I'm doing safety briefings with oil and gas executives to get on these helicopters. That must, have been, that must have been a trip, man. <laughs> like. Wild. Nathan's learned lessons from his life experience that can't be taught. He's a deep thinker, a philosopher, and a young man with a heart of gold who's finally realized the meaning of his life, to serve. For a long time I was on my knees going, I don't deserve this, I'm a good man, someone's gonna come save me, no one's gonna come save you. The victim mentality. That's right, you gotta save yourself. But the problem is we all need help. Figuring out how to To figure that. out how to save ourselves. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Trigger warning, this episode discusses suicide. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please call Lifeline on 13 14 11 or the Suicide Prevention Hotline in your country. Nathan, you used to call yourself a street kid. <laughs> How did you end up becoming homeless? So I had a pretty normal life up until probably about eight, nine years old. Um, my mother was a single mum with four kids, one of us disabled, and my dad did FIFO work, so he just wasn't around very often. Um, so pretty much just she got overwhelmed and certain things started falling through the cracks. Um, eventually my father had a diabetic coma when I was about 12, so I moved to Darwin to try to develop a relationship with him because I didn't know him very well and he almost died. Little did I know, really, the living situation in Darwin wasn't very adequate. Um, I didn't have a bedroom. I was sleeping on the living room floor of a two-bedroom apartment, which was uh, quite um, poor quality. And I was going to middle school in year eight at this point. Um, so you're like 13? Yeah, 13, 13, 14. Oh, no, 13 at this point. Um, and I was working at McDonald's, so I got very fat very quickly. So <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was sleeping on the floor of this apartment, working at McDonald's after school. Um, got very obese and were that, you just eating the whole time you were McDonald's working? McDonald's all the you time. You meant to serve it, not oh, eat it. Hundred percent. Double quarter pounder in, out. Nuggets in, out. So. Which is sort of hard to imagine now because you're a pretty slender unit. Yeah. At the now still got the fitness of how it was back then, so that's something to work on. Yeah. But, how big are we talking? Oh, morbidly obese. Like I was right. probably so I'm about seventy kilos now, and I was probably. Six inches shorter and 25 kilos heavier in middle school. So oh, yeah. I had, okay. a, had a fair few chins. So <laughs> I got bullied a little bit at school. So I had to, had to be funny. So I was, I was the funny fat kid rather than being the fat kid that 
got put down and pushed to the side. So that that ended up being my reputation. But the problem there is I identified with being the fat kid. But I kept all everything at home on raps. Um, and I think due to bullying and things, the teachers kind of saw maybe I wasn't doing as well at school as I once was because I, I am quite good academically. But you'd mask it by being the funny guy? Yeah, by being the funny guy, the class clown. You know, my, And that's a good defense mechanism as well. Fantastic. The best, one, Fan, the best, the best one to do it because that way I became friends over time. And, and over time as well, it wasn't the harsh bullying as it once was. It became just a joke and i also had to reflect on myself that i wanted to do better but in terms of self-esteem it's still pretty bad for a young kid to see themselves that way and and get treated like that very very much so like you're under heavy duress and i think what a lot of people forget is often people see themselves how society sees them so in that moment before the homelessness i was the fat kid and Mm. i saw myself very much as the fat kid um, so your self-worth was, was really low from a young age. Very low. Yeah. And and my home unit was very dysfunctional. So there wasn't much support um, on the home unit. So it's not like I had many people I could talk to. And moving to Darwin, I was now alone. I didn't have the friends that I once had from youth. So um, being a teenager, people are more set in their ways with their social circles as well. So it's a little bit more difficult to break into that so lucky I was funny yeah. <laughs> because I was able to break through that and start getting invited out um but yeah working at McDonald's after school to predominantly get money to spend but then that wasn't good for my weight um but you must have felt like you didn't really belong anywhere for a long time for a long time and the negative thing about my home situation was I didn't want to go home so I would actually prefer to work at Macca's so I would I would do longer shifts um sometimes I'd leave school at because we finished school there around two. So I'd finish school around 2.30. I'd go to Macca's at three and I wouldn't be getting home till sometimes 10 o'clock at night. And to be honest, I've, I've now done a lot for work. Um, and I'd say McDonald's is still probably one of the hardest jobs I did. <laughs> yeah. So shout out, shout out to all the fast food workers out there because it's not easy. Um, but due just to all the pressure, working long hours, going to school, not having good relationships in my personal life, uh, my mental health started to go downhill a little bit. Um, so that's when the school started to inquire um and i was going into counseling and i wasn't filtered in the counseling so i told them about my home situation not understanding maybe what consequence that would bring um and the school did a little bit of an investigation into that circumstance and this lasted for about a year um so i was on the floor of that apartment for probably about i got out of there permanently when i was turning just 15 but i was couch surfing and things by 14 so i was pretty much on that floor for about a year year and a half um, and then the school came in and kind of saw the situation. And the problem is then they removed me to crisis housing. So at this point, I was still at the end of middle school. So just before that, when you were on the floor, that was technically your address, but you weren't really living there. That was my address. But I, when I went home from work, I'd sleep on the floor of the apartment and then I'll go back to school and then I'll go to work. Or And there just wasn't much supervision there or you, nah. weren't, you weren't being looked after? No, I wasn't being looked after at all. Like I had my father and my brother there, but my, my dad's very absent-minded along with my brother. It's not, I, I, not to pass the blame. I just think that they themselves suffer with mental health and they didn't have the capacity, the to capacity look after or, or, or the wants or aspiration to. Like I don't think my father necessarily wanted to be a father and with four kids like it was easier for him to move interstate and do FIFO work and supply the finances but not have to do any of the fatherly things um and so why were you ultimately moved out of that uh, just because I was technically homeless because the housing was so low quality so because I didn't have a bedroom I was on the floor plus the care was not adequate um, and there was a bit of emotional duress so Mm. I, I was removed out of that into something they call Casey House 
which to be honest in a way was worse um because my father wanted to look after his own uh i guess reputation to a point so he didn't want me to go back home which is fair enough but the problem is you're housed in casey house for three weeks in crisis housing so you have your apartment and there's a carer with eight other kids that are struggling um, in a crisis situation and then on the fourth week they kick you out and by that point they assume hopefully you've re-established some grounding at home so hopefully you can go home or at that point you've organized some sort of a alternate accommodation but um, a lot of the time that's not the case how are you going to do that at 15 mm. 14 i'm in a new state i don't know anybody yeah you know yeah and you'd be freaked out whether you were realizing that or internalizing that in, you're, internalizing in a, you're in a that. state of flux and, and trauma already so 100%. how are you meant to sort your own life out and yeah. quickly in casey house i had imposter syndrome to a large degree because while I've gone through a lot of emotional distress through seeing my parents fight, just a um, pretty combative home. I never got beaten. Like I, I was never single out, singled out by my parents and abused. Um, I didn't do what some of my friends did, which was immigrate over to, from some seriously dangerous places in other countries. So my story compared to my peers wasn't really a story. Mm. So me being in this crisis housing, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I felt like I was taking up the room of someone that desperately needed it. But you didn't belong in your home. And I didn't either. belong in my home either. So on that fourth week, I would not have anywhere to go. And for the first few times, it was pretty negative. Um, but I was lucky that I had these friends called Jack and Woodsy. Shout out to Jack and Woodsy. Um, cause he had a Val, 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 so Jack was classified probably as a crisis kid too. So he, his dad was a federal police officer, um, but not a good dad. And there was domestic violence with him and his mother and they ended up splitting. So then the, his dad was never around and his mum had a new boyfriend. So she was just always at the boyfriend's house. So we had a house to ourselves at 15 years old. So often when I would leave the crisis, I would go stay with Jack for weeks until I got Re-establish and you weren't crisis. going to school at this point i was wagging almost every day because i didn't want to go to school i didn't enjoy it um I, the teachers i didn't respect which mm. was a major problem um yeah and i guess you felt like you didn't fit in there either that's right yeah. uh, i think that's a major thing and i didn't see much benefit to school so um, what started to uh happen at that house and uh, in your life so at this point well, i was 14 going on 15 still around that age bracket and that's when i started drinking um getting into more of the debauchery the partying hanging out with more of the street kids in crisis because um, all the i made friends at casey house so of course like attracts like we're both in desperate situations so we all started hanging out with desperate kids mm. <laughs> um was there something you liked about that time the freedom and, and the adventure. Like, I, I would be lying if I said it was all negative because I was so young, I didn't have anything to compare it to or risk to understand. Mm. Um, and it was freedom as far as freedom can go, I think, for a young kid. And the benefit of being alone is I did fall forwards and I fell forwards on my face a lot, but I had only myself to blame. I couldn't really point the fingers because my parents were absent. So mm. you can't really blame them if they're not there. <laughs> So there's just a lot of responsibility and responsibility with freedom at a young age. What a weird yeah, paradox almost. But then also not mm. the self-awareness or the maturity to actually do anything healthy with it as well. That's right. Correct. And, 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 and working at McDonald's to get money to spend, I was only getting paid $13, $14 an hour. So I was trying to do long hours there to get money to go do debauchery <laughs> yeah. with the friends. So the work wasn't really what most people do work for growth or work um, for the next step. Mine was work for 
escapism almost to get that finance mm. to um yeah to, to go into hedonism yeah. and where did that lead you as a kid basically into some interesting places and i'm not not sure if most people would understand this completely but to very detri- like dangerous places in young age like being being drunk on night cliff cliffs and climbing things you shouldn't and um all sorts to very heavy emotional situations in youth like like in darwin there's a lot of violence on the streets and when you get drunk and you're bored and you're young you were in fanny bay nightcliff area so we would always walk around and go on adventures i um, mean anyone that lives in the northern territory before the housing got demolished in fanny bay knows exactly the type of stuff that went on in that place and there was a lot of fighting a lot of violence and we became desensitized to it because we weren't so much involved because we were kids but we always were watching it it was almost like the thing to do is get a little bit intoxicated and go out and see all the street fights mm. all the drama that was happening all around um so that was normalized it was normalized very quickly and the, and the problem with that is it, you become very desensitized to it it makes you capable of doing it as well capable of doing it and it and it's it's leisurable to watch and I think that's actually a very negative thing like there's a difference between professionals testing their ability and people that are in anguish with no options having emotional outbursts and mm. that's and that's what Darwin Streets is filled with is just a bunch of people that don't know how to control themselves their emotions are pushed to the brink and they're in confined spaces and the inevitable happens, which is physical conflict. Was there a particular time that sticks out in your memory where you were attacked and had to defend yourself? Yeah, particularly one. Um, I was, so we just had some, this is a little bit later on when I was housed in Anglicare. So I got housed in a permanent house by Anglicare. So this was our full-time house, uh, housing facility and I was living with um, with a lot of, with Africans and Shout out to Missy, AZ, I'm the godfather of his kid, um, who would have thought we would be best friends and have the relationship we did today, because to be honest, when I first met him, we're polar opposites, hat backwards, you know, pants down to his knees, your classic. Um, what happened when you first met him? I first met him at Casey House, but I met him properly when they opened the door to Anglicare and said, this is who you're living with. So, so that's how I met him was being introduced to my new roommate. And how are you received initially as a skinny white boy? Initially, I think he looked at me like, who's this skinny, weak looking white boy? Because you'd lost the weight by then. Uh, I lost the weight due to stress and mm. um, just the debauchery. I wasn't eating as much as I was going out causing ruckus at this point and I stopped working at Macca's. And when I opened the door, I saw a gangster looking African guy with his hat backwards, um, with, with strong language and lingo and street slurs and things like that. Um, little did I know we're much more alike than we are different and we would become closer than family. Um, but pretty intimidating. Very intimidating and very scary to be put into an environment like that as a young, as a young man with no um, knowledge of how to go about it. Mm. I mean, I think my way, way to go about it back then was killing with kindness. Like, stand up for yourself and at this point i'm lucky shout out to dane my other friend he taught me how to box so at this point i was getting into a little bit of trouble on the street so dane's like we need to teach you how to box because you can't keep getting beat up everywhere Mm. you know so because and so on that were were there times where you were attacked and and had to fight to look after yourself yes yeah there's quite a lot i was probably in conflict at one point once every fortnight um just for being around other street kids. We're all in crisis. A um, lot of jealousy and resentment among people who are struggling. And so even if you try to do the best that you can, things will be interpreted differently and people will get offended in places that wouldn't normally 
they wouldn't normally find offence. Mm. So I was getting into a lot of conflict just because, as we know, I talk a lot. And uh, maybe I uh, said some things that I never meant to be offensive, but maybe were interpreted as offence. And that led to a couple good punches and a couple good right hooks. And weirdly so, I must have a strong head because I, d- I haven't got knocked out. But that's actually quite a negative because I've lost many fights because when, when, often when I've already lost, I continue getting hit because I haven't been knocked out. So there was this one situation um due to months of conflict and back and forth and arguments with these two kids um he must have set a trap for me at a at, at a park on from my bus stop on the way home because he knew where i lived so i got off the bus and i was walking towards dickwood drive and in between the main street and dickwood drive there's a large dark park area and i was walking just along the path to go around and i just saw a figure on the park and in darwin everyone knows you see people at the parks all the time at night weird hours it's never a shock to see people in large open spaces at night time so I didn't even think about it and then I got king hit on the back of the head and I fell and I got stomped a fair bit on the grounds and I, there was no chance to defend myself whatsoever in that situation and that was probably the worst because I didn't see it coming and I think that's what makes a difference is when you see it's see it's coming it's it's a lot easier but when you don't see it coming it's um you got no chance you got no chance no chance at all yeah and, and, a, and a lot more damage occurs when you don't see it coming yeah, what, 100%. what damage was done on that occasion oh, a lot of just facial cuts bruising swelling like just what you expect from getting stomped on I'm, I'm lucky so i was on the path and when i got hit i fell my body was on the concrete but my head was on the grass mm. so when i got stomped my head was on the grass so i got pushed into the dirt but i didn't crack your skull. so it didn't crack my skull if i was on anything hard and if it wasn't even if it was dry season because it was closer to wet season so the ground was mushy mm. so if it was more um dry and solid i'm sure that the damage could have been more severe those situations as difficult as they were it's given me respect for things that people face every single day like i I face these situations in early in my life but i had good support systems through my friends dane jack az um so i had places to go back to to feel comfort at this point in my life you had some sense of community some sense of community and a very strong sense of community at this point because this is about four years down the track and so how old are you now i would be 17 yeah in this um altercation so this is just before i started working on the helicopters so this Mm. is right when i was wising up to this isn't the life i wanted to live so this was near the end of the um the worst of it um and having being confronted with this violence on like a regular basis Mm. when you reflect on that now did you have you internalized that as as trauma or did you find a way of dealing with it i think i did for a long time and i think more so because the psychiatrist and things i was talking to said that i must have levels of trauma due to these events when I was going through them, as, as odd as this may sound, everybody was going through it. Everybody was getting into fights. Like, everybody was seeing this violence. Like, like, like it's difficult to articulate how much of an imposter syndrome I felt. Because even though I was in violence, I was still a small guy. I was still well-spoken. I was still kind. So mostly by the end of it, I wasn't in the forefront of it like most of them were. So, even though- so you're still able to compare and see that, that others had it worse much worse like not a little bit worse significantly worse so coming to talk to these psychiatrists about the trauma 
like they they listen to it and they'd be like, oh, it's the trauma, it's all this. And, and you're like, yeah, but you should have seen this guy. You should have seen this. You yeah. should have seen everything happening out the back here. Like mm. I, I don't think. And and after this led my life led me down the tunnel of philosophy and psychology just to try to understand myself and a reason to why these things happened and try to understand, like you said, the violence and the chaos. Um, How did you see your life? through those teenage years you know from 13 to 17 how did you view your place in the world i didn't have one um at all suicidal tendencies were very much so at an all-time high like the only reason i was really standing in is in the friend group that i cultivated with az and dane love was the forefront so i'm lucky that i still had a lot of deep emotional connections because i had no self-worth whatsoever going through obesity to homeless to people beating you every day to the school telling you that you're not going to amount to much to everything in society just being genuinely against you how, how can you cultivate any self-worth when no one tells you that you're worth anything so of course i i had i had none of that and um i remember you've said to me in the past that you didn't see yourself living past 18 yes and I've always kind of had those motivational, I know this sounds weird for a lot of people, but the way I saw it was not through a lens of sadness. And I'm sure people in turmoil might understand this. And, and this is where I think we need to use more cold cut language with people and not assume you need to be delicate with people because we are resilient. And people in crisis have probably been thinking about these things every day for a very long time. I think the main thing for myself was I had to give other people support and that was the main thing that I was holding on for is if I left we were all we all had nothing we only had each other. So it was more so so it wasn't all about you. It was for my my you friends. You knew you were an important part of their lives and you could appreciate how difficult that was for them because you were going mm. through it as well. 100% and if anything I was the more emotionally rational of my group my very close group in that house, especially with AZ. So people came to me for more of the, to, to have the emotional conversations. Like we lived in a very violent place. It was a man, like a man's world. Like you don't cry, like you, you pull yourself together, you know? So when I came into the share house, if I saw one of the boys was looking a little bit frazzled, a little bit emotional, where in my house always had eight people. It was always an act, act activity there. So I'd bring them into my room. I'd be like, hey, bro, I just want to show you something. Come have a look in here. And then I'd come in and then I'd sit them down. I'd be like, talk to me, what's wrong? And then more times, I'd, more than often than not, they wouldn't talk, but they would cry or they would just sit there and feel. And you could see just that moment of connection and that moment of relief because, Release, yeah. because it's the first time these people got genuine care from another person. And in, and in that- Yeah, because term, you have to have that front up more, more so than in- um, average life all the time because you're Always. under constant threat and people don't understand how much threat you were under like even even your closest friends are emotionally deranged it, it will take one trigger for them to even turn on you so mm. the trust is not there the love and compassion is not there to even their family and closest friends so to for me and them to be able to cultivate this community we had trust beyond trust. Like the loyalty that I have with my friends, still I'm the godfather of Asia's kid. Like we still have loyalty and love that will last a lifetime. Like we, we are family. Um, and that was cultivated through grieving together, through struggling together and facing these suicidal tendencies together. Mm. And um, I didn't want to make it to 18. My, my life at that point was completely negative from nine years old. So I suffered from severe depression from nine. Um, 
in hindsight, it wasn't trauma that gave me depression. It was a taught behavior because my family is depressed. My father's depressed. My mother's depressed. My older brothers are depressed. Um, again, no one to blame. We all need to focus on mental health, which is great that we're paying attention to it as a society now because my parents were victim to the pressures of society and her, the children are the consequence to that. Mm. Um, and, but it's no one's fault, if that makes sense. So it's just why we need to look out for one another. So my depression was taught to me at nine and I, I've had a depression mentality all the way through um, up until I can say only probably 18 months ago where mm. it all really started turning around for me on a strong note. How did you pull yourself out of that trap? I got an opportunity which was completely out of right field, which I would have never expected in my life. I, I, at this point, I still was working hard at McDonald's and Woolworths all the way through. I was definitely hustling with the boys, being uh, on the lower end of the economic spectrum. You got to hustle to make ends meet. So I was definitely doing some things that could be considered not of legal. Yeah, um, which ramps up the trouble aspect. Which ramps well. up the trouble aspect. So I was really lucky at 17. I got offered, I was going through the newspaper. Um, I saw a job for aircraft, well, hangar sweeping just at the airport to clean hangars. Um, so I applied for it. I went for the interview and I killed the interview. And this was with Bond Helicopters. So all of a sudden I went from being a homeless kid with no direction, no hope, working dead-end jobs with no self-respect to working, a, even though I was just a sweeper of the hangar. Now I'm next to 332-225 Super Pumas. I'm around highly educated avionics and mechanical engineers. I'm around logistics team leads. I'm around all these sorts of movers and shakers that I've never been exposed to. Mm. And I was like, this is a whole nother side of existence. This yeah, is, there's, this is, there's this is hope amazing. here. There's hope here. Mm. So I sweep that bloody hangar the best, <laughs> the, the, the best I could. I had nothing else to do. So Were you a good worker? As I well? worked hard. I swept that, that hangar. That hangar was spotless. You could see yourself in it. Spotless, mate. Spotless. <laughs> the boys would often make jokes about it. So, so very quickly, they said, "Are you going to school?" At this point, I was still going to school. I was passing my curriculum, but I was wagging every day. Right. So I was. I'm going to school. So you're smart. Well, I was passing. Yeah, but you weren't going or learning at all. You were just able to do it still. Yeah. So you're pretty intelligent. But yeah, yeah, you could say that I'm somewhat okay academically. Yeah, but I know you like to say you're street smart, which I'd have to give you <laughs> give you the credit for. I think um, I'd say more wise than intelligent. I think I think that's the thing. I just more so know how to think. Well, you've had a lot you of know. experiences that lead to that. Yes, yeah. and I had to find my own information. So I think that's what I did better at school. I didn't like to sit there and learn from people that didn't even know because most of the time the teachers don't even know. I'd rather get the points and I'd rather go search for it myself. And the problem with that though is then I failed due to attendance. So right. I, I, I was I was pretty good on all my academic side of things, but my attendance was well below 50%. So they failed me because I wasn't really a student to their school. Yeah. <laughs> so um that's when as well I went full, they offered me a full-time job working at Truscott Mungalulu Airport with Bond Helicopters, which was a FIFO job, which was perfect because I was still in Anglicare crisis housing mm. and now I've got a FIFO job. So I started flying to the Kimberley in Western Australia to a remote airbase that used to be a World War II airbase. Um, working with 30 other people working on as a general hand on these super pumas doing genuine aircraft maintenance um yeah went from a street kid to now i'm doing safety briefings with oil and gas executives to get on these helicopters that must, be, that must have been offshore. a trip man <laughs> like. wild because at this point as well no i was very shame well shameful of my story mm. and because i was articulate no one knew Everyone just assumed I lived a very privileged life. Yeah, you've so. always been able to blend in 
Very well, yeah. Mm. Like play the chameleon. That's sort of how you've been able to survive. Absolutely. And that's, that's that emotional intelligence is mm. sort of a, a gift that's got you through. I, I would say very much so, mm. and 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 I think genuinely being able to understand my company, like and respecting my company, I want it to be. I, I want to add value to everybody that I'm around. Like have a good conversation, be funny, yeah, like, and keep like, people on side. Have a good, yeah, have a good time. That's what, that's what life's about. But so. you also be yourself, and I think that's why you're an interesting character because you you're very varied, and there's a lot to you and you can fit in with anyone and, and make anyone like you but you're not a snake yes and i think at this point as well i've lived like four different lives so yeah. <laughs> i'm go- go- going from being a homeless kid like at that point even if you talk to my friends that i was around i acted spoke and articulated myself as a street kid and when i started hanging out with well you couldn't because you have to adapt you, have you, to could, adapt. you couldn't be what, speaking I- like you need to speak at the at the briefing for the the helicopter with them because 100%. then you're not going to be one of them could you imagine if i went to one of the nt street kids and i was like hey let's talk about like philosophy yeah like i had yeah. alan watts in one year and rap in the other like like, <laughs> like, 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 like what street kid am i going to talk to about alan watts like it just doesn't make sense like they, they wouldn't be interested you'd, you'd be that's like oh a- you heard of alan watts i'd be like fuck off you fucking loser like uh, yeah I'm not that's interested. a great quote <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah so you were by this point you had a full-time job yeah so now yeah. i was working full-time so and i was 17 mm. so i went from dead-end jobs no money doing somewhat questionable things just to pay my rent to now I'm earning 50 plus thousand dollars a year have a highway to an avionics apprenticeship working on super pumas as some of the most impressive machines and this base used to be a world war ii base like there's crashed spitfires in the area there's um bullet shells there's equipment from world war ii it's like stepping back into a time machine that Mm. hasn't been touched by mainstream society it was absolutely a culture shock and unreal and then I went offshore. <laughs> so that was a whole other experience. Like you mean offshore drilling? Oil rigs, yeah. yeah. So in hindsight, because hindsight's twenty twenty, um, I was experiencing so much new. I was like, well, how much of this can I experience? And the curiosity for the offshore oil rigs, because we're chartering people out there all the time, I didn't know what they looked like. Mm. So I was, I was hearing the stories about it all the time, but I didn't even know what they looked like. So there was a massive part of me, whether it be ADHD or curiosity, that really want to get out to the oil rigs. I heard the money out there was phenomenal. There's Deepwater Horizon, there's movies and things on oil rigs, you know. <laughs> thought it would be pretty impressive to be able to say that I was offshore. So I started putting out my feelers and talking to some high level employees that we were chartering offshore and weaseled my way in. <laughs> and ended, You're good at that. <laughs> and, and ended up leaving the helicopters, doing six months of training. Um, <laughs> The boys on the helicopters didn't understand really why I was leaving the position because I didn't want to really make it that public that I would made another position in that position, mm. if, if that made sense. I just, yeah. I don't know why I felt insecure about that, but I felt like if I let the boys know that I was going offshore. It's like a betrayal. It's like a thing. betrayal because they were my mentors. I looked at them as very sound, reasonable men and, and they looked after me very well. They had faith in me. and It was like the first time in a long time people gave me um value yeah i guess so i felt like i was betraying these people but at the same time i really wanted to see what it was like offshore yeah. <laughs> like it's just really curious um yeah. and what was it like the worst choice of my life oh shit no, le- i know you've made some bad ones <laughs> the, the lessons we learn you know like 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 
I thought I was lonely before. <laughs> you, you go to an offshore oil rig yeah. at 18 years old, because at this point I was 18, going on 19 because of the six months of training, left the helicopters pretty much on 18. So I was 18, 19 going into these offshore oil rigs. Everybody out there was 40, 50-year-old American drillers. Yeah. What type of conversation are you going to have with a 45-year-old American driller? Yeah. And how far out are these rigs? <laughs> oh, we're in like pirate waters. Like, so I, <laughs> I, I had to get my passport, but we weren't. So off the coast of Western Australia, there's tons of oil rigs. So I worked on the Noble Clyde Bordreau for a long time, which is decommissioned now. Um, and then I worked on the Northern Endeavour, um, which was a production vessel. But yeah. Our, what was your job there? Um, so just a shit kicker. All around shit kicker. So I went from being a general hand with an avi- basically an avionics apprenticeship, working on some of the most oppressive machines, to fixing drains if it was clogged, yeah. to cleaning shit that needed to be cleaned. Like just any of the shit kicker work out there. I was getting paid like thousand twenty one thousand dollars a month before tax. So yeah, I went. That's that was a major. Which motivation. means that the job has to be pretty shit. Pretty shit. <laughs> pretty fucking shit. And like we're, we're we're trained on piracy. We're actually trained on mental health because suicide is a major risk for a lot of these offshore workers. Mm. And there's a there's a lot of history of people jumping off the side it's of so the platforms. So bad. So isolating. And so isolating. A lot of these people have genuine fi- family or financial issues mm. at home, and they're trapped on a platform for upwards of a month. Because we do month, two month stints or month stints now, but. So how long did you stick at that for? Uh, not as long as I wanted. Not to mm. choice, but there was a oil and gas crash coming into 2015, 14, 15. That pretty much took all the work away. Did probably three and a half months on platform on the oil rig with Noble. And then I probably did one full month together on the production vessel with Northern Endeavour, with with good chunks of wait time in between. So I did a month with Noble, then a week at home, then a month with Noble. Then I had two months at home. Yeah. I did another month at Noble. So and you just were just coming back and blowing the money away. Blowing the money. <laughs> like, like, like blowing the money. It was the first time any of me and my boys ever saw a dollar. Yeah. And we had lots of dollars. <laughs> so I'd, I, I, and being a selfless person with not much self-worth, I wanted to give my boys the experience. So so we would get home and we would go party, we'd go out casino, we'd go out to town, we'd get hotels, but I was the only person that was paying for things. Yeah. So I very quickly... So money was gone fairly soon. Very quickly learned that 20 grand in a week with eight people is not a lot of money <laughs> whatsoever, especially when you're all just yeah. trying to do the wrong time. things with it. Well, depends what you call a good time, but yeah. it definitely wasn't a fun time. Like, yeah. Anything to excess, that's another thing that I learned there is the money was great. We're doing everything we always wanted, but boy, there's a back burner to pay mm. for bad behavior. Mm. I'd be going back to work when I'd be facing all the repercussions of the bad behavior. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had some of that. <laughs> um, and So then where'd you go from there after you got off the rig? So after I got off the rig, I did have some savings. And I was like, well, the rig's not coming back anytime soon. And I looked around at my situation in Darwin and I was like, at this point, I got my own house. I wasn't in government housing. so. And you've been shown that there's a way out of that. And there's a way out. And now I genuinely have trialed and errored the way out. I have my own house. I felt functional. I had money to get the necessities without worrying about mm. it. Like for the, I can't, and I'm sure many people feel this, when you get to put fuel in your car and you don't have to look at the price of the fuel that you put in your car, you feel rich. Just yeah. let, letting that thing flow in and you look out to the... I don't even care if it's at 60 bucks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it all the way to full. Like, that's a major milestone for someone that struggles with money for a lot of their life. And mm. I moved from none of it to too much. So yeah. I was like, 
me and my friends are just going through this. This is bad behavior. And I'm going to end up probably similar to where I was because as much as I love my friends and they all know I love them. They're still in that. A lot of them are still in that. And a lot of them know how difficult it is. And and that's not where you found any of the new positives that you'd acquired. not where acquired. I found any of the positives. It's just where you were spending them. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. So at that point, I looked at my situation and I spoke to some of my friends and they really didn't want me to leave. But I said, I'm going to Adelaide. It's cheaper financially. Everything's cheaper. Um, there's more employment opportunities um, just all around. It's a better. Qu- it's not too big. Darwin's a tiny city. I didn't want to go to somewhere like Melbourne. I would have been very overwhelmed with mm. just the size of it. So I thought Adelaide's perfect. Plus, I did grow up in Mount Barker till I was nine years old. So I, I was at least uh, familiar with Mount Barker. So that's where I decided to move back to Mount Barker in my own house and start working in real estate down there. I tried to redevelop a relationship with my family. didn't work. So, <laughs> so I just had my own house down there and started working. Um, and how did you get into real estate? Well, so I moved down with my money that I saved from the oil rigs and I needed a car because I didn't have a car. Um, so I was like, right, well, with pretty much the last of my savings, I need a car. So I went to buy one and coincidentally, I bought a car off a real estate agent, um, Jason Carter, who's a major mentor of mine. Um, and coincidentally, he's like, you're really good at negotiating when I was negotiating for the car. And I was like, oh, yeah. I try, you know, you got to. So he was trying to sell to you and you turned it around on him and yeah. he thought, I could use this guy. Well, I think so. Like, well, like he was pretty stern on his price and I, I, went, I went through all the. You weaseled your way. I went, I went through all the things and I, I can say I got the price well below what he was willing to really right. give it. And I think he more so sold it to me because he was like, oh, this kid's got the gift of the gab. Mm. And I think he was more impressed rather than anything else. And so he gave me the <laughs> discount on the car. But And then he employed you. Well, he mentored me. So he didn't employ me. He goes, you're obviously skilled at sales. Have you worked in sales before? And I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> like not legal ones. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't worked in sales at all. Um, and then I went and got my real estate license and I went through all the training there to his mentorship. So I went and became a licensed real estate agent out of my own pocket. So I paid the money for that, which was about 5000 um, so between the car and the training, sending all my stuff down the plane, at this point I was broke again. So yeah. I probably had 20,000 savings and that was extinguished by this point. So now I was broke again and in training with no work. Um, so immediately I started looking around. There was a smaller family company in Mount Barker, which was just easier to get employment with being a real estate branch. Um, so I joined with them which was fantastic for the first year, but I, I, I noticed very quickly that I wasn't being coached and mentored as much as I was being used as a paper press. And then I started getting genuine leads for house sales and things like that because I was out doing the door knocking, I was out doing all the cold calling when I had um, opportunity. And, oh, there, that's, and this is when Jason wised me up um, and after I got a little bit of sales, I realized they were giving my major major leads to their main agents so that's considering i'm a licensed agent and i've sourced yeah, those so you're leads. doing the groundwork but you're not getting any of the profit and i should have yeah. um so it was completely backwards and it was just favoritism in the office um but that was a fantastic place to learn because i did get involved in real estate sales i was doing open houses i was selling properties because they were giving me all the paperwork <laughs> and i made some great connections and i ended up doing work in land estates and uh, and things like that so i was able to see all sides of real estate i think it was a good thing to learn because i learned i didn't care much about the real estate as i cared about the people I really found interest in the people, like going into their house, seeing the way that they lived, 
Um, most of the time when you're selling a property, it's divorce or deceased estates. So there's a lot of emotions involved. And at this point, I am was well-rounded in exposure to heavy emotions. So mm. I was actually quite capable of talking to these people in times of discomfort when it came to their, especially the deceased, deceased estates or their divorces. Um, not that I'm any divorce expert, but I can provide comfort. That's what I'm good at, mm. uh, being a listening ear. Um, and being empathetic in moments that call for genuine empathy. And, and where were you at with your self-worth at this point? You've had all these jobs and learned all these skills. Still non-existent because I found all my self-worth externally, um, all of it. From the work I was doing, I wore as a badge of honor. Uh, oh, I work on helicopters. I work on oil rigs. I'm now a real estate agent. But I never felt like I was being, like I was betraying myself. Like it was, uh, it was a front. Um, and it was also a culture shock going from homelessness and oil rigs, being a rough type of individual to p putting on a suit, like mm. a full body suit and tie. And feeling like an imposter again. And feeling like an imposter Even again. Even though you felt like an imposter as a street My kid. My whole life, I felt like an imposter as a street kid, felt like an imposter on the helicopters, felt like an imposter on the oil rigs, felt like an imposter wearing mm. the suit in real estate. So when did that change? I think that changed probably a year and a half ago when I realized... I haven't faked any of it, <laughs> like, like, like I did it all. Um, and I think it took, uh, so after I worked in real estate, then I worked in solar sales and I started coaching and training people and we got some good sales through there. And I realized I just trained and opened an office in a state for a business. I know my stuff. <laughs> like I know a lot more than I knew I knew. And when I'm in flow state and when I'm in those moments where I'm able to just say the things that I think I know, I'm, I'm a lot more capable than I gave myself credit for. So it, it was having other people like my business partner um, came to really step back because he hired me um, at a renewable job. Um, he stepped back and he was just like, you're a lot more capable than I think you give yourself credit for. And then I started focusing. Because you always had this view of yourself as someone who wasn't up to it, wasn't good enough. Um, who didn't fit in and shouldn't really be anywhere. Mm. But actually along the way, you'd learn such a vast array of skills. skills. And then also some technical skills mm. in various areas. But the street smarts, the emotional intelligence, uh, you can't teach that. No, I don't you think know, you Other can than at all. living through it. And you'd actually become an extremely skilled person in interpersonal relationships just by being under all that stress for so long. Very much so. And I think... Um, a long time I saw my empathy as a curse. Now I'm older, I see that it was the biggest tool that I ever had because my empathy was what got me through everything. My kindness, my love, my understanding, my viewpoints, that all was empathy. And that's what was really my weapon in a way. So I saw both sides of empathy where I felt too much of others' burdens that I shouldn't have felt to the point of genuine distress. Um, and then correct empathy, where you give someone comfort. In that moment, you listen. In that moment, you feel. But also learning to try separate from that, because if you carry that with you, with already what you're carrying, it can be crippling. And I got to a point once where I was selfless to such a degree, I completely neglected my health. So at the end of real estate here, even when I was working in solar sales, this was probably the worst time in my life. Um, and I don't tell many people this, and it's quite private, but... Even though I went through all the homelessness and everything there, besides for 15, 16, by the time I was 17, I had a lot of friends. I had a lot of community around me. Even though life was still hard, I think the fundamentals were sound. When I moved here and after real estate, I felt like an imposter in my own skin. I didn't have friends. I didn't have deep connections. All my things were business related. I didn't have any personal relationships. And I was still 
trying to save as much money as I can. At this point, I didn't have a lot of money. I was still paying for everything by myself, full rent. Um, and I, the house I got was completely decrepit and, and filled with mold. It was absolutely filthy. In hindsight, now knowing what I know, I can't believe I lived in that. Um, but it led me to being paralyzed from my knees down, from being, to being mold toxic and to my brain legitimately being poisoned. Which you didn't find out about for a lot longer. For three years. Yeah. So I thought... And it's black mold? Black mold. What was confusing me was I was like, this is everything I ever wanted. I have my own house. I have sound work. Um, but on the back end, I, I was completely in... Just empty. Empty and in stress. And to top it off, legitimately mold toxic. Mm. So I thought my insanity... Which can give you... Or makes you lose, you lose your, mind. your mind. Lose your mind. So I thought that I was just at the catalyst of my stress in my life. I thought that this was just a point where it was all catching up to me because I was alone. Um, I was in a very unhealthy relationship. I had no self-value and I thought that I was going insane because I was. Um, I could feel the disarray in my mind. I couldn't think soundly. My emotions, which I've always been pretty collected, were all over the place. And you thought that was down to you. I thought that was me. Mm. And that really made me judge myself cruelly. Like in the generic way that I think men judge themselves. I was weak. I was being a bitch. I wasn't being stoic. And you were thinking, I've been through all this hardcore, why, why is this, this hardcore yeah, stuff and right. I'm at a much easier point now, technically on paper. Why am I finding it so hard? And I couldn't put two and two together. I was like, out of everything I've gone through, this should be the point that's a walk in the park. And this is the point that I was, uh, never in my life did I get to the level of depression in the past where I would wake up catatonic. I couldn't move. Like, like just from deep depression, like I'll get up out the bed and the weight of gravity would almost pull me to the ground and then I would weep on the floor because that's the only thing that I could do. And I thought that this was genuinely just all my emotional distress. How'd you find out about the mold? Um, Kane, who was my boss and who hired me at the renewable job and who's now my business partner, um, he had suffered through mold toxicity about four years earlier in his life. Which is pretty unlikely. Unlikely. Right? Like, like most mainstream doctors don't, test for mold um it's just now on the main on the mainstream medical field being really focused on and and really looked at as the cause for depression anxiety um physical joint pain physical pain because the other thing i was in legitimate physical pain and i thought i was imagining it yeah and the, the agony was genuine agony um and anyone that was in my life around me over the past three years um previous to 12 months ago would have seen the confusion and the agony I was in. And I was still performing in sales. Mm. And everyone that knows how difficult sales is, you need to be upbeat, you need to yeah. be happy. So I was in this anguish, this agony. But I was, oh, how's your day been? No, oh, it's fantastic. But then I was going home to being cut because I, I used all my emotional energy in the day. Yeah. I had nothing left. Um, but Kane figured it out. Yeah. From his experience, he was able to go, I know exactly what this is. And I didn't believe him. Because I'm very scientific, lit, scientifically and that seems, literate. that seems pretty unlikely, just, right? Like, even though there was obviously mold around, mm. never in my life did I think environmental toxin could do the damage. And it, now I know what I know. It sounds stupid saying that. Because, of course, an environmental toxin can do what it did to me. But at the time, I didn't think it could because I, I thought that you could control your mind because mm. I always had. You always had. And you're like, well, if there's a bit of mold, that's not going to do this. Yeah. It's not going to do this. And and And... All the psychiatrists, of course, that I was talking to in this duration, I didn't tell them about the mold because I wasn't thinking about the mold. So they're all going trauma, 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 yeah, and, trauma. And you're, you're going to think, I'm going to sound crazy if I say that anyway. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the house that's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, doesn't sound <laughs> it good. It doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. They'll put you in a loony bin. So yeah. at this point, they put me on 
very strong antidepressants and things like that. It worked well and I'm pro-medicine, but the problem was I didn't fix the underlying problems. So it was a band-aid for a week. I was like, possibly this will help. It gave me hope. Yeah. And they started dosing me up, dosing me up. Suddenly I was on 200 mg of venaflaxin. If anyone knows, it's a very high dose of venaflaxin. 75 is like the top average mm. male dose, like 150 if it's pretty critical. And I was on 200. And at this point, I was just a walking zombie. Like I, I, I didn't feel anything. Like, 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 like I, I thought that in depression, I didn't feel anything because the feelings are quite dullified. But this was a whole new level of just nothing. Like, mm. like. So you got out of there eventually. Eventually. So after Kane pointed everything out, it wasn't actually until coming into the start of 2019 that I was like, I need to fix myself. Like I'm in a bad relationship. I'm surrounded by toxic people. I've gone mold toxic. I've, and at this point I went paralyzed. So my my legs stopped working. I went for MRIs, ultrasounds. Um, and do you have permanent nerve damage now or has it come back? Well, it's coming back, but it's still not right. So I hope that it continues to get better. But there's not much. They don't know much. Like, like all the nerve doctors and everything have just said, wait. <laughs> mm. um, and I've gone back for more testing and my range of movement is back. So I'm still weak. Like I still have weakness, um, but the range of movement's there. And I can tell that my mind's not toxic. Like It's it, crazy just how much serious damage that can be done by that. Oh, like people wouldn't, wouldn't really believe it unless you go and do the research and figure out that it is actually a real thing. I was going to hospitalize myself and I'm someone that studied psychology, philosophy. I've, I've been in, in the most difficult circumstances and I've been a coach to people even through this time for mental health, like since youth. <laughs> but your thoughts are like all over the place. But they were all over the place. Mm. There was no rationale and, and very fast pace. It was rapid firing. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't articulate. And the worst thing was memory recollection. I couldn't remember. So like my friends would tell me things and then they would ask me something on that subject and I wouldn't remember the conversation mm -hmm. at all. I started talking to my friends and asking and pinging questions and they're like, honest to God, we'll say that you don't remember 80% of things. Yeah, that's scary. And I was like, what do you mean I don't remember 80% of things? Yeah. That's, that's terrifying. My mind's not working. Mm -hmm. My mind's betraying me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm healthier and I'm probably the best health I've been in the past Ever. Ever. Now. Yeah. Um, because I, I have the money, I have the finance, I have the business skills. Like employment's not a problem for me now, which is fantastic. And you're staying away from the mold. I'm staying away from bad behavior, yeah. staying away from the mold. I got good influences so in how, my life. So how did things start to get better? When Kane said it was the mold, just having that trigger going, maybe it's not me. I'm not crazy. Maybe yeah. it's not me. Maybe it's my environment. But then I was able to get a, a super withdrawal as well with coronavirus coming around. So I, I used um, 10 grand of my super as a buffer and just boosted myself in a, into a whole different lifestyle. Like I had this mentality before where I was like, I have the ability to earn a lot of money. Like I was earning a lot of money from the helicopters, even real estate and especially even solar sales. Why was I living in the condition that I was living in? It mm. just didn't make sense. So like when I started thinking about this, I was like, screw saving money. You got to invest in yourself. And this is when I changed my mentality. What am I doing putting money away for a mortgage or to invest in a business when I could be dead in a couple of years if I don't look after myself? Yeah. So I've put all my money into myself with no reserve. I don't feel guilty about it. If I want nice food, I'm buying nice food. If I want nice clothes, I'm buying nice clothes. And if I don't have the money, I'll find a way to get that money. I'm, I'm never going to live with less anymore. I'll find a way to earn more. If that makes sense, mm. so I'm the scarcity mentality is something that I'll never adopt again. Sure, but also you don't place that much value in money past a certain point either. Money's 
a tool. So if you have enough to be a resource, that's all you need. But if you have enough to be a resource and you're not utilizing it, what are you doing? Because you figured out that you could make a ton of money mm. by certain means that you then learned didn't have that much value to you and no, you decided not to go that path. No value. Like, as much as I love sales and I'm very skilled in sales, um, I find a lot of passion in people. Um, and when I have these conversations deeply about people's lives and their mindset and the directions that they want to go, that's where I find tremendous value. And uh, I heard, I think it was Joe Rogan talking about purpose and you need to be on purpose. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're on purpose, you'll find success. Um, and even the motivation that I've seen from you starting the podcast, I was like, well, then I need to move into mental health. Like, like I'm well-versed in this, even in my sales, the only reason and I you'd been well doing sales, it, you'd been having those discussions and finding value in that and giving value in that space your whole life without even recognizing 100%. it. 100%. And now I've broken the code of money in the sense of, I know how to earn it. Do I want to do that specific work Legally. to earn that money? Yeah. Do I, do I want to do that work to earn that money? Do I, do I want to have pretty empty conversations? Yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, do I want to have empty conversations and sign paperwork all day? Or is there a way to earn money and just really add value and change people's lives? Mm. And that that's what, where I've seen all this mental health work and the community all standing up together where we need more preventative mental health treatment. We need more people standing up and, and assisting each other. And the main clinical setting is A, very expensive and not very tailored to the client. Like, it's also just part of the picture. It's part of the picture. And I don't want to talk poorly about it because it was genuinely helpful for me. And I I, I, am an, I, say, I tell everybody that you should have a professional in your lives. You, if, if you're not talking to someone, you should. Even if you feel okay, like you should have a relationship with someone, a professional, to have these discussions. Because uh, I know if my parents did, if they had a mediator, even our lives could be very different. They just don't know how to talk. Mm. You know, they're not bad people. They're just completely ignorant. They don't know how to talk. Um, so what's your focus now? So my focus now with Kane, my business partner, is going into coaching. So we've looked at each other and we're like, we've we've gone through so much through environmental toxicity to health to life circumstance. We feel like we can genuinely assist people and. Doing some research on these things over the past one year, two years, it was interesting to see that every single person that is an achiever has a coach. There's not one person that is a mover and shaker that doesn't have some sort of coach, whether it be PT, mindset coaching and accountability or any of those things. It keeps them accountable to their goals. Um, and one thing that I'd like to say is no one's going to come save us. I think that's an important thing for everybody to understand. For a long time, I was on my knees going, I don't deserve this. I'm a good man. Someone's going to come save me. No one's going to come save you. The victim mentality. That's right. You've got to save yourself. But the problem is we all need help. Figuring out how to To figure that. out how to save ourselves. And we just need a roadmap. Like we're, we're all, every single one of us is way more resilient than even we know. And until we test our resolve, we won't find out. So we need to test ourselves. We need to push ourselves and we need to see how far we can go. And in the moments that we feel like we're not able, we need someone there that sees more in us than what we see in ourselves, because then we'll achieve it. Why is life coaching the avenue for you to affect people's lives and, and be that, that outlet to do what you want to do and find that purpose? Mm -hmm. It takes one person to make genuine change in our lives and a way to do that soundly in a very personal way for 25% of the cost of general clinical setting is to have conversations with people, to talk about purpose, fear, resentment, grief, relationships, like all these major things that we put in the back of our subconscious, which is the main defining things in our personality. If we confront these difficult 
things in our psyche early on in younger age, whether it be between our between twenty and thirty five, we're gonna be fantastic men, fathers, partners, the whole lot. We just need to understand what we're scared of. What what are these things inside our core that we don't think about that one way or another pull our strings <laughs> that play our puppets and you want to take this around the country big picture at some that point. was the original goal so originally before covid we just wanted to do a bit more of an awareness thing we we're going to invest our money into just getting a caravan and doing similar to what you're doing here going around and just doing mental health awareness going into crisis housing like i grew up in and talking to other youths and getting their story more public so just awareness is the solution like like like, like people are just not aware and they don't understand if they understood then that stranger would have at least been kinder to me like i had adult men sometimes spit at me as a homeless child because you were at that i was at a, that level i was lower on the ladder mm. than them and i think the only solution to this is education um and the more we can get out there and make this a big platform i think the better so unfortunately COVID put a put a big stop on that. So the quickest and I think the most valuable thing we can do now is coaching and, and continue doing, try to do these things like podcasting and awareness and getting stories out there. So why are you grateful to still be here? I'm massive. I think the, the two things in the past 18 months, which has been massively important to just turning this all around is forgiveness and being grateful. Like I, I had a lot of resentment still to my family, to society, to certain relationships I had in my life. Um, Yourself. Was, myself. And a lot of this was pointing the finger. And what I found there was disempowering. I, it took the power away from me. So forgiveness, step one, even if you don't want to, it's not for them, it's for you. Like even if they don't deserve forgiveness, forgive them because it will eat your soul. So forgive them. Move on. And then be grateful. Like and that's one thing I've always been grateful for is, I guess, again, in my chaos, I was able to look at my peers and go, they have it far worse. They have it far worse than I do. So I didn't even know I was being grateful in a way. And now and now I have a lot more than I had back then. There's plenty to be grateful for. So uh, taking at least 30 minutes each day to stop and look at what you've achieved. I think that is very important. We do a lot, but we don't pat ourselves on the back. Like you need to stop and reward yourself. We're, we're reward-based creatures. We, we're, we're designed to suffer for a reason. So suffrage is fine. Work hard and, get, and do what you need to do. But when you've achieved a milestone, you, you've achieved a goal, take a moment to genuinely stop and show appreciation to yourself. And that kid who didn't see himself living past 18, mm. um, when you look back at that now as a 24-year-old man, how do you view that? Pretty wild. It's pretty wild how such a short period of time can change so much. And I think that is a lesson I'll always keep with me is I felt empty, defeated. And I've been at this point many times in my life. And one thing that you never lose, even if you lose it all, is experience and knowledge. So fail forwards and fail often, and I failed often. <laughs> and the information and knowledge and life experience I got from it is invaluable, more than what any money could be. Um, what it's done for my personality, my um, perspective, and just my overall mindset and appreciation, I am so thankful for. And shout out to YouTube for Jordan Peterson, Alan Watts, Sam Harris, like all the greats. Like Make sure you're digesting high-quality information from high-quality people. And be careful of what you're digesting, because if you're digesting rubbish, 
you're gonna talk rubbish. And don't digest too much maccas. <laughs> yeah, don't don't eat maccas if you can. Avoid the fast food. It's it's absolutely horrific. Oh, yeah. you're one of a kind, bro. <laughs> nah, I appreciate you coming. Straight back at you. If you're a fan of the work we're doing or have a suggestion for the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. You can follow Youngblood Men's Health Matters on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and visit our website youngbloodmedia.com.au to stay up to date. And most importantly, if this conversation resonated with you, share it with someone you love and start a conversation of your own. A huge thank you to our local business supporters who've joined our mission to change the lives of young men for the better and help make this possible. We're all in it together. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.